This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Hindu on Books podcast. This is G Sampath and the title we picked for this episode is Kaveri Nambisan's new book, A Luxury Called Health: A Doctor's Journey Through the Art, the Science and the Trickery of Medicine. Kaveri belongs to a somewhat rare group of writers, the doctor who writes fiction. She is a general surgeon, a domain where women are uncommon. Another uncommon thing about her career is that she is a rural doctor having practiced for the most part of her career in rural India. She has published 7 critically acclaimed novels and A Luxury Called Health is her first book-length foray into non-fiction. This is a book that's not easy to classify. At one level it has strong elements of the memoir but it also contains social commentary history and feminist critique one common thread running through all these elements is a desire to engage with fundamental questions about health sickness and medical treatment to find out more about this exciting new book without further ado let's now go to the author kaveri thank you so much for joining us thank you sampath for asking me to do this kaveri to uh, start with uh, let me start with a general question As a writer you have been partial to fiction and are known for your novels what prompted you to take this turn towards non fiction and how did you get the idea for this particular book I have been asked to do something like this uh, for years but I was not really keen and um, just some years ago during a moment of weakness I agreed to do it it started off as a desultory effort but later once i got started it began to make sense and um, so i carried on so this book it has a quite a few of the dramatic elements of fiction such as scenes dialogue and so on and it also has as we said earlier social commentary medical history some sharp observations and elements of memoir and it is therefore a little difficult to classify as either memoir or non fiction or social commentary so how did you come up with this particular form did you have it in mind when you started out or did it, uh, did you settle on it as you went along can you talk a little bit about your process in writing this book i was uh, clueless really how to do it so i decided to simply go through my own experience of uh, training and working as a doctor while also i was i mean while i was writing that i was reflecting upon the manner in which the medical system was evolving and since i am really a storyteller it came out the way it did unfortunately for me uh, vijay is my usual first reader and critic and uh, this book didn't uh, you know have that um, benefit but we had uh, talked about my writing this book i had talked to him he had not yet read any of what had written started to write but uh, i remember he told me that uh, if you talk about the things that you have really happened it will you know you'll have a lot of stuff something like the james heriot's writing you know so well all of that helped me to get on with the book okay so you thought of it basically about in terms of talking about your experiences as a doctor yes okay and one of the first memorable scenes or incidents that that sort of strikes the reader when they start reading is about the time when you were in england studying to be a surgeon and then you write a letter to indira gandhi and then she writes back i mean can you talk about exactly what you had written in your letter that seems to have provoked her quite a bit and her reply to you and how you look back on the whole episode 
Yeah, I really kicked myself for not preserving that letter. It was very cowardly of me, you know, to tear it up. I used to read about what was happening in India during the emergency years, and I was quite horrified. I think I wrote that it was uh, utterly, utterly wrong to have such governmental control in a democracy like ours. And, uh, you know, you see, I got carried away because I was heavily into Emerson, Gandhi, Plato during those days. And the letter must have had a sort of a self-righteous or a rather cheeky tone, you know, which must have annoyed her. But I don't, uh, I don't regret writing the letter. Okay. And also going back to your training uh, in the UK, I mean, most doctors, uh, Indian doctors who go to the UK and come back with those uh, foreign qualifications, they tend to sort of either stay back and uh, either, either they stay back and continue to work in the UK or when they come back, they join a big uh, hospital in one of the urban centers. But you, on the other hand, have worked mostly in rural India. So as a medical professional, what differences were you struck by the most between practicing in urban areas, which also you have done versus practicing in a village? In rural practice, the doctor gets involved with the local community. It can be frustrating, fulfilling and often great fun. The rural folk are more direct about their likes and dislikes. So you have to learn to adjust to that. Of course, there are uh, advantages that are least expected. You get to be the chief guest at school functions. You get bunches of bananas and other edibles and... Uh, once a patient pointed out that I was wearing my sari inside out. So all these, you know, benefits. And of course, rural practice forces you to keep abreast of medical knowledge. At least for me, it was so because rural practice needs an all-round sort of skills, not just a specialized skill. So even if you're a surgeon, you have to be up to date with medicine, pediatrics, orthopedics you know, the various, as many branches, as many things as possible. And that is a challenge and it is a good challenge. And did you have a greater freedom as, as a medical professional when you were in rural hospitals or clinics compared to uh, a corporate setup in an urban uh, location? Definitely, because uh, urban setup, as you know, is um, very specialized and uh, you have to narrow your work down to only that. So if you're a general surgeon, you will be nowadays doing probably mostly abdomen, you know, neck down and probably just the abdomen, not even the pelvis. So I think the advantages of being able to do whatever you could do within your limitations. And uh, so you can expand your skills and can improve your knowledge. I used to, I had been back to England a few times for six months to a year to update my skills. So that helped me a lot. Okay. And uh, your first stint as a rural doctor was in Bihar. I mean, where for the first time, I understand you have to treat patients with uh, gunshot wounds. I mean, what was it like having to handle gunshot wounds without prior training or exposure to the art of operating on bullet injuries? It must have been quite something. I was uh, totally unprepared. I hadn't been warned. But strangely, I don't remember feeling nervous. I I. I think it's thanks to the excellent training in anatomy and physiology that we got at our medical college. And then during my training in England, I actually learned that a lot of surgery is simply knowing your skills and knowing your anatomy and physiology and then using common sense. That was a, was a major, you know, 
learning process for me or a major, I would say, what do you call it? A, a moment of uh, understanding something, you know, it just exploded in me thinking, wow, this is so easy when you start thinking of what you must do at, in such and such a situation and not think theoretically of textbooks and all your knowledge. And surgery, like in Bihar, it is also teamwork. And we had a very good set of nurses and theatre staff. So it was, I suppose, in that way, smoother for me to get on with it. So many, many of these gunshot cases are also medico-legal cases and, you know, uh, there are lots of uh, non-medical issues related to that. Did you sort of have to face those complications where, suppose, a gangster comes to you with some gunshot wound and, and you probably may, uh, he may not want to have certain kinds of information going to the cops? Uh, were those kinds of pressures something you had to face as well? Oh, yes, definitely. But it was, um, it took me a few months to get used to that. And because we lived within the hospital campus, we didn't have any feeling of, uh, you know, any risk or danger. But patients always, when they gunshot wounds, they, they, when they come to you, we know that so-and-so is a gangster. We, we are already aware of these things. And uh, they'll come to talk to you and, and beneath the shawl, you can see the gun sticking out. But I had made this rule that I'll speak to just two people from a family and always after the surgery because surgery is um, has to be very quick and we had to you know be in the operating room very quickly so there was no point trying to explain to patients it was just whether the patient was critical which they always were always were and how you know were they really happy for us to go ahead with it or did they not want us to so if they said go ahead with the operation we finished the operation and only then i spoke to the relatives but there was intimidation at times a sort of a very nothing very fierce it was gentle intimidation of people coming and asking you to change your statements and so on. But I managed to somehow, you know, overcome them. I used to only just very politely say, don't worry, nothing but the truth will come out. So that then they didn't, you know, after some time, they knew you, you won't get intimidated, then it was all right. Right. I mean, I, I really enjoyed reading the chapters on your experiences in Bihar, especially one, I think, passage where you complain that you could not keep even one bullet as a keepsake. I mean, given that this was Bihar and would anyone have really come to know, would it have mattered if you had kept one bullet for yourself? Oh, I wish I had pinched a few bullets, you know. But given that it was Bihar, the nuns who ran the hospital ensured that uh, no one meddled. And these were as you said, medical legal cases. And uh, every case eventually went to court. Many of them, the police were in the hospital until they were discharged. And some of them would be would straight away go to prison. And, and uh, in court, the bullets had to be displayed, you know, the number, the type, everything. And I had to give the police statement every time, but I used to do the written statement. And then we had a regular representative from the hospital who would go and uh, read it out. So fortunately for me, I didn't have to go to court and, you know, waste my time. So what I did do, so I, since I couldn't get bullets, I, what I did do is I used to bring home all the gallstones and bladder stones and other marvelous stuff that we take out of people. And Vijay preserved them in bottles. And we had a large bag full of those bottles. One particular calcified object was the size and form of a cup. Vijay is set to work. He painted it um, beautiful white. And then we gifted it to a friend for his wedding. And the words Vijay wrote on it were, 
a gift money can't buy. I'm not sure if the groom appreciated it, especially when he heard uh, where from it was extracted. Right. right. Yeah, that's a rather unique collection, right? I mean, we have all kinds of collectibles, but gallstone collection is quite unique and I'm sure uh, uh, the groom would have uh, appreciated it as well. So this was in Mokama Hospital, right? In in Bihar. In Mokama and in Uttar Pradesh. Both places, uh, you know, this variety of surgery was there. But gunshot wounds, wounds of course, were primarily in uh, Bihar. Right. So from Mokama in Bihar, you moved to a hospital run by a Hindu religious order in Vrindavan in Uttar Pradesh. So from a, from a, from a Catholic hospital, so to speak, to a Hindu Zarke mission hospital. So as someone who is not particularly religious, was it difficult for you to adjust to a hospital run by Swamiji's with pujas going on every evening, Aarti and all those uh, bhajans and so on and expectations as well uh, to go through with religious customs and so on? It was difficult for various reasons which I have mentioned in the book, you know, mainly that the hospital was really not well run and uh, lot of change, lots of changes had to be made before you could be satisfied with doing surgeries there. But the Swamis were all right and many of them were, have remained my good friends. But the religiosity of certain people who tried to impose it on me was bothersome. You must visit the mandir every day. You must address the swamis as Maharaj. You must touch their feet, that type of stuff. I could not really abide by any of it. But I was always respectful and I hope sincere. I had a good time over there in Vrindavan where I worked. And experience, surgical experience was also very vast and wonderful. Wonderful experience, yes. Right. You write about one such incident where there is a visit by a very senior Swamiji and, and you are expressly instructed to touch his feet and everybody stands in a line to go and touch his feet and then you go and politely do a namaste or I don't know, shake hands or something and walk away and he's, he doesn't seem to mind. Yes, that is uh, that is true. And one of the sections in the book that I found uh, particularly disturbing to read was the one where you talk about how very senior doctors in a leading corporate hospital in Chennai uh, go along with a manifestly wrong decision of their boss or super boss who is both incompetent and manifestly arrogant. And in one instance, this leads to a totally unnecessary amputation of a young man's uh, arm. So how widespread is this uh, phenomenon in corporate hospitals of doctors who are eminently qualified not speaking up or speaking the truth to their superiors. I mean, shouldn't it be easier for doctors or surgeons to speak their minds without fear since medicine is a skill-based profession and their skills would always be in demand because it's a scarce commodity? It is the saddest aspect of a beautiful profession really that we do not have the courage to admit when we are wrong. Mind you, it's difficult to confront one's mistakes and failures, but it is only when you are honest with yourself and able to admit it that you can make amends and prevent such errors. I'm afraid that this type of conduct is not uncommon and not just in corporate hospitals, but almost anywhere. I believe in the importance of doctors meeting at least once a week to discuss not um, their accomplishments alone, but also their uh, mistakes so that, you know, so can learn how to prevent those mistakes. I think, I'm sure some of our good hospitals will have these meetings and Western countries um, do have them. And 
but I have to say that uh, the doctors who are, you know, I know remarkably good specialists working in different parts of the country, some of them my close colleagues, and we have talked about these things, but it is, uh, they once they are in the stream of, um, you know, urban hyper-specialization, they just focus on that and uh, they do not, you know, consider these things, not, not all of them, they do not, not all of them want to consider uh, the ethics of the institution you know each one thinks that okay i shall do what i feel i must do but the ethics of the institution they do not um, want to question i think that is um, that is a pity that is really a pity right and one one another thematic element that runs through the book is kind of a feminist critique of the profession and you speak about this lady uh, called gayatri and how she is a very senior corporate uh, a professional and her challenges as a working woman so how challenging was it for you as a woman getting into surgery when you started out and how have things changed over the decades are women still discouraged from taking up surgery as a as a, as a main specialization i was luckier than most in some ways my parents were conservative but they encouraged uh, learning and education i must have also observed some of the strong women i came across in my life and but i may not have been conscious of it at that time but i must have observed them generally i was a quiet and shy obedient sort of girl but i could be self-willed and defiant when it was necessary to be so i think it is uh, essential to question what you do do not believe in i didn't find getting into surgery more difficult than my male colleagues would have found and the only real discrimination i had i did face was when i worked in chennai and was told to stick to female patients only so that i felt very offended because uh, that was that to me was discrimination because i was used to seeing all patients right and are more women uh, more easily coming into surgery these days i think it is it is probably there are more definitely there are more people coming but um, i personally don't think the wherever there is discrimination that for that to go it takes a lot of lot of time and effort like i have seen even in the us i have seen as i mean in certain places i did not work in the us but i have see, seen and heard about how women do face um, discrimination because a lot of men will feel that it is their domain and you are treading you know that type of thing yeah but if you want to really do it and if your work is good in the end nobody can stop you right and uh, coming to a very personal section in the book the one on your uh, husband late husband vijay nambisan's illness and unsuccessful treatment i mean you you have written also that this account despite it being personal and very personal the purpose of writing it was not personal and that the whole experience was an education for you can you talk a little bit about your pur- purpose in including this difficult and deeply personal chapter and what you meant when you called it an experience or an, an education see as writers we write to communicate and if our channels of communication are clogged then there is no point in writing so i wanted my writing to be free and open and this um, my vijay's illness and the whole process of you know struggling to make him better was a very important part of our experience and my experience 
as a doctor because um, while uh, he was the patient and i was just looking after him from the outside i was not treating him but i was uh, i was aware of what was happening within his body i was aware of what the doctors would do and what they would not do how they would discuss it was a, it was a totally different experience and then to find that all our um, struggles vijay's and mine and all my love for him all my medical and surgical training and all the experts that we have none of it in the end could um, save the most precious person for me you know that was a an extremely difficult thing it is it, it is a very difficult thing to face in life and for a doctor it was it was something traumatic but at the same time i wanted to speak of it freely because uh, i think as doctors we we choose sometimes annoyingly we are arrogant and uh, that feeling that i am the expert and nobody dare question me that you know that attitude comes without knowing and uh, my own feeling is i uh, as young doctors we should be trained in you know the type of uh, understanding for the patient and the empathy that um, extreme suffering patients who are suffering deeply from some illness they need this is lacking in our profession right now and i i just wanted to express both the good and the bad of um, you know what happens right when you are describing the course of treatment for vijay's illness i remember one of the uh, one of the episodes is to do with the surgery in his uh, in his abdomen and it was supposed to be a routine one and and the doctor tells you off hand that he's the best surgeon or he's one of the best in the country or something like that and then you're struck by that and then it turns out that he hadn't really done a good job and do you feel that if if the system had been sort of wired to work differently the treatment could have gone better definitely that was the point i wanted to make with that chapter was that all this posturing that doc we do you know i'm the senior person and i walk in front and all my train of junior doctors follow me and just hang on to every word that type of thing you know is so it's just it takes away from the actual caring for the patient because uh, the the minute we start feeling self important i think in any profession i mean you would you would know in any profession the minute one person begins to feel self important just because he's the boss and then he forgets a lot of other things you know it's always his image that matters and uh, i think we have to rectify that's what i feel if they'd only you know try to listen and uh, try to spend a little more time for the actual complaints of the patient and what the patient is trying to say i think you know things could have been better gone otherwise yes right you also write that although 90% of people's ailments are uh, required just a a simple general practitioner or gp to take care of the problem uh, the gp will soon become a curiosity a rarity and not not just in india so why do you think the gp is going extinct and what does it mean for ordinary people who need basic care for simple ailments like fever or whatever do they then have to go to an apollo or a medanta every time they have a stomach ache like what is how do you see this developing that's a depressing thought isn't it that you have to go to a big hospital with small problems but yeah unfortunately because we did not follow a good quality socialized welfare system in our country we ended up um, with uh, all sorts of mishmash and uh, you know people doctors began to go in for private medicine in a way which wasn't even controlled 
and now we are um, i think set for more and more privatized medicine and uh, online consultations and the gp the classical gp will probably be a thing of the past although i still feel that uh, what the gp can do is a lot it is not just the ailment because a gp somehow has uh, a more a personal touch than the hospital doctor for various reasons and um, there is so much you can do for a patient sitting in a clinic and uh, we are going to lose that i think and that is such a pity and you uh, towards the end of the book i mean i think when you were finishing the book the entire pandemic happened and you have a chapter on covid-19 where you make a very strong case for including ivermectin as part of early stage treatment protocol and as a prophylactic but from what i've heard most people including many senior health journalists that i've spoken to they keep telling me that it is only used on horses and animals and and in the case of the only clinical trial that i think has been done on ivermectin the data was proven to be suspect or plagiarized and the research findings were withdrawn this goes contrary to what you say in the book so is there merit in the arguments which are given by conventional kind of approach to ivermectin for covid do you think most this is something very important i think in the current context do you think india has blundered by not aggressively using ivermectin in its treatment protocol uh, during the first and the second waves see there is so much misinformation about ivermectin and i'm appalled that people are buying that i have read extensively about it i know the drug ivermectin even before covid it's a deworming medicine a simple and safe deworming medicine we use for children for adults and of course for animals too but and it was it has been found to be very effective in both treating early covid and in preventing it there have been uh, not the one one paper that they publicize all over the place saying it is fake but there have been over 60 peer reviewed clinical papers you know which show its efficacy and um, they show its efficacy in uh, treating covid yes yes and the, a group of doctors from across the us and europe who have endorsed ivermectin all along and have formed groups you know like ivermectin british ivermectin recommendation group is there and there is the alliance for critical care in covid critical covid care alliance in europe and also in the us and they've even gotten to court regarding the use of ivermectin because there are patients who want ivermectin but the government bans it all over the world it looks like governments are banning and major hospitals are are, are definitely using ivermectin but they don't want to publicize the fact because then they cannot give all the expensive injections and other medicines that they want to use and governments are um, also you know anti ivermectin because it is a very cheap drug and if people get well and it is very easy to give very very safe as safe as paracetamol and if um, people start getting better with it then uh, you they may not go for vaccinations you see and then the whole pharmaceutical industry is going to suffer both because of all the vac- the billions of dollars they spent spent on vaccines and the very very expensive injection so i have been using ivermectin for both the first wave and the, towards the end of the first from about yeah towards the end of the first wave and for the all through second wave and even now and i treat patients hundreds of them in kurg and so many of them in the cities who write to me online or phone or something and uh, you know if there were adverse effects if it was meant for horses people would die you know up government actually sanctioned the use of ivermectin and it was put in their drug kits for the russia workers to take to the villages and perhaps that is one of the reasons up you know the mortality did not rise so high as it did in uh, 
did in Maharashtra. But um, of course, UP suffers from other reasons, it's healthcare, but ivermectin they did use. Many governments, many of the state governments did use ivermectin, have used and are still using ivermectin. But because of the strong public opinion, they choose to keep quiet. But I don't know what the end of the story is going to be. But I still am a believer in ivermectin. Your patients responded well to ivermectin. They didn't have to, they didn't develop complications and have to be hospitalized or something like that. Not a single patient that developed any complication due to ivermectin. I've had very few that I had to actually even refer to hospitals. Very few, handful. Most of them, if they come early to me, I don't, I try not to take on those who have become extremely serious because it's no point because right now I'm only in a clinic. All the others I, you know, I treat, I do their lab tests, everything. And so I have not had a single case who has had any reaction to ivermectin. I have only had one family which who reports to me from Mysore. So I don't know the people at all who um, were treated with ivermectin and uh, they became, became better the first time when they had. But after about six months, they tested positive again for COVID. So that I am not, but nothing, not that it became serious or anything, but that I am not very clear about. That was the one case where I've had a little different um, you know, result, but otherwise everybody has got well. Yeah. And I, I take it for prevention. I give my family, you know, lots and lots of people I give. Yeah. Right. I think this is a very important topic of debate, but uh, this particular podcast is probably not the place to do it in. It probably needs it a separate episode. And uh, and yes, but this book is about health and we are in the middle of a pandemic. And of course, uh, it makes sense to get into this as well. But coming back to the book, you end a luxury called health with an impassioned argument for an equitable public funded healthcare system similar to the NHS in Britain. Uh, but the reality in India is that pro-market policy making has become the kind of become an orthodoxy today. And people keep saying that the NHS model might work in a smaller country with small populations, but is not really feasible in a country like India with a with a massive population. So how do you address this argument when you say we should have an NHS kind of system here? For heaven's sake, the size of the country doesn't matter. I mean, it should not decide the quality of health care. I think particularly health being a state subject in India, we could certainly have a very good, good quality socialized welfare. Very much needed because of the fact that we have millions who are sort of either average or below average um, income earning people. We started off well soon after independence, but somewhere along the way it got, you know, um, murky and uh, i i think right now as you as you know the way things are going there is more privatization there is this um, great desire to you know to privatize everything so i don't think we are going to have a nhs like system but i do think that if somebody had the will it will it would work anywhere it would work because the system is so sound it sh- it could work but a capital intensive society i suppose it you know it wouldn't Right. Kaveri, we're running out of time. So one final question before we wind up. In your book, you speak of society, the nation as a body, one that may develop certain ailments, but could recover with the right course of treatment. Now, taking this metaphor further, if if you think of India today as, say, a human body, and it comes to you as a patient complaining of whatever, severe headache, heartburn, indigestion, what would be your advice to this patient? 
my first instinct is to say that the queen of hearts in uh, alice in wonderland say off with its head you know but um, no seriously speaking i think um, yeah india is in a state of ferment now and uh, in for all sorts of reasons and certainly it will have you know headache and heartburn and indigestion and everything I think all this all of it the headache the heartache the gutache everything will go or will be mitigated only if we learn to live in harmony and um, stop uh, always competing and wanting to be the winners in everything which actually adds up to believing that we are the best in everything i think our whole um, india as a body can't get rid of its headaches or heartburn unless it addresses this holistic issue that's my belief right thank you so much uh, kaveri for talking to us about your book i mean i really enjoyed reading it it was uh, even though it's a in in places it's a bit grim but it has been a great experience it was a page turner and i do really hope anyone and everyone who's been listening to this podcast uh, gets to listen to it will want to buy the book and read it and talk about it there are lots of issues for debate in it from from the way doctors do their jobs to the way hospitals are run to the way uh, health policy and public health care is decided and administered in the country to the challenges of uh, administering and providing healthcare in rural india to the challenges the middle classes face in accessing healthcare in corporate hospitals you have covered an entire gamut of issues and done it in fantastic very readable prose and i do hope a lot of people get to read this book thank you so much for your time thank you sampath i really enjoyed speaking on the podcast thank you thank you for listening to the hindu on books you can now find the hindu's podcast such as in focus and parley on spotify apple podcast stitcher and other major platforms Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 s o c m e d 4 at the rate thehindu.co.in 